everybody. Welcome back. It's a new episode of Bitch Breathe, and I am your host, Ricardia. First off, apologies for my absence. I started a new job, plus my birthday's coming up, so there's been a lot going on, and I didn't actually manage to broadcast, if you will, last week, so I'm hoping you are all the more looking forward to this episode this week. The other day, I was at a copy place. I was struggling with my copy machine. It wasn't doing the format that I needed, and I was awfully frustrated, so I hung out by this copy machine for a while when I noticed this guy next to me was also there for quite a while. And he had two phones lying in front of him, and he was trying to pull up the Telegram desktop app, I think, you know, that messaging app on the computer that he was using next to me. And I could notice that he kept trying to enter passwords, and they kept getting rejected. And he altogether seemed a little antsy, and suddenly, I recognized the behavior. I looked at his hands, and there was a wedding band on his right hand, and I realized what was going on. The guy was trying to check his partner's phone to see if maybe he or she was cheating, to try to find out the messages. And at that moment, my heart went out to him. I'm assuming all this. Of course, he could have just been looking up for something completely different. But I just something about the behavior looked so familiar to me because I was exactly in the same spot several years ago, checking my spouse's phone for signs of infidelity. We'll get back to that particular topic a little bit later, but I started with this story because it again made me think about this topic that I've been mulling over in my head for quite a while, which is how do we know when we should stay and when we should leave a romantic relationship? And when I looked at this guy next to me, I thought, yeah, it is hard. It's hard to know, should we stay or should we go? And what are some of the, if we want to call them that, key indicators for staying or leaving our loved one? So in this episode, I won't be giving any advice. I hope I don't get caught giving too much advice anyway, because I don't feel like I should be. But sometimes I do unsolicited. So instead of like advice stuff, I want to ask all of us a couple of questions. And I think by looking for answers to these questions, maybe there's a way to slowly but steadily maneuver our way towards some telling answers. So first off, I thought the most obvious one might be, well, how often do you ask yourself this question, should I stay or should I go? And maybe the frequency of that thought coming up is a little bit of a sign as to how things are going. Because if things are going fairly well, and whatever that means, we'll get into that more later, then you probably won't be asking yourself this question all too often. You know, maybe once a year or once in five years or twice a year. But you probably wouldn't be asking yourself every week or every day. And that's just an assumption or a suggestion, right? Because maybe it's good to ask ourselves every week, is this still working? Is this thing still on? Just to understand that the frequency might be a sign. Secondly, it's nice to look at whether or not this is working overall. Is the relationship working? What do we mean by that? There are a few things that might be helpful here, and that is 
do we feel like we're still growing together? Are we still interested in each other enough to have ourselves grow together? Do we talk to each other a lot? Do we do stuff together? And is there maybe a genuine interest in the other person's happiness? So not just our own. In this day and age of me, me, me and self-love, a lot of times things get a little confused. There's nothing wrong with self-love, but there are ways to also figure out love in terms of service and love to another person, I think. And that's what I'm trying to get at here is to look at the genuine thoughts and feelings towards this person. Doesn't mean we have to make them happy all the time or that they have to make us happy. But are we interested in having each other's happiness as an aspiration in this relationship? And I love what Alain de Botton says about this. I've quoted him quite often in this podcast and also in my book that I'm now writing, by the way. And he says, listen, we're all impossible to live with. All of us are. So if some other human actually declares themselves ready to tolerate all the impossible idiosyncrasies and habits and weirdness that we have, great. So if the dissatisfaction is just sort of a mild to moderate, eh, he doesn't buy me flowers or she doesn't message me as much as she used to, whatever that is, to maybe put it into the context of, okay, and that would probably be the same with another partner in a new relationship. And just sort of having this, what I think, very humorous thought about wanting a relationship to be perfect and happy and great all the time and maybe realizing that that is not entirely realistic. One other question we might want to ask ourselves is, do we address issues as they arise? Does the other person address issues as they arise for him or her or them? And when we do, if we do, what is the reaction to our bringing those up? So first of all, do we bring up the issues or do we settle for things won't change any way or we're tired, it's been a long day, we don't want any disharmony? Do those things happen? But if we do decide to bring issues up, what is the reaction? How do we react to our partner if they come up with something that we probably have heard before or that we don't really feel like changing because you know what we're this in this age we don't want to and if we bring up issues with them what is their reaction are they annoyed are they frustrated is there even aggression because we've heard it so many times and we just can't give a you know what so trying to gauge our own and the other person's reaction to when we have something that is truly bothering us or maybe hurting us even and how does that look and I want to come to something that maybe I should have come at from the get-go because these to me are two things that at least in my past some of them were clear indicators that it's time to hit the road and one, of course, first and foremost, is physical abuse towards ourselves, towards anyone in the family. I write a little bit more about it in my book. But for me, that's definitely a signal that an exit plan, keep everybody safe, should definitely be put in place. And again, in my book, I write about the communities, the organizations that can help us with that. So I'm not telling anybody leave now, because that in itself could be a very unsafe thing to do. But to sort of Look at it as an indicator that clearly things are going really awry and that maybe it's time to put some concrete steps into action. On the other side of this abuse, 
narrative is, of course, verbal abuse. And from my own experience, I've been verbally abusive upon being verbally abused myself. It was for a long time that it wasn't working. And I noticed it's a really tough one to come back from. Once the language starts to deteriorate, once there's name calling, there's ongoing disrespect in terms of language used towards this person whom we apparently love, it's kind of hard to reverse the course. And I've noticed that unless you invite somebody else into the conversation who can sort of rein you both in, it's almost impossible. But when the verbal abuse is happening and both of us are interested in reversing that course, this is another example that I did experience, then we would stop each other. We had a word, not a name, <laughs> but we had a word where when the other person had transgressed into verbal abuse, we would say that word. And it was a funny word that I won't repeat <laughs> because it's a little weird and very much a part of that relationship. But it was great because it was a stop sign. And it was something that worked. We called each other on our abusive language and were able to stop by using or employing this word. But there are many, many aspects of verbal abuse. And so you'll probably have to know when enough is enough for you. I want to say a word about smartphones. Seems kind of weird, but hear me out here. When I was in a very long-term relationship, the first couple of years, smartphones weren't around yet. We talked to each other, dinner was never interrupted, and overall there was a lot of communication with each other looking each other in the eye. When the smartphone occurred about two, two and a half years into the relationship, I can safely say that relationship changed for the worse and for good for the rest of that relationship, which was another nine years. <laughs> so you're like, okay, lady, why do you say nine years? No, the smartphone wasn't the only problem. But it definitely changed how we interacted with each other. One of the indicators or questions we can ask ourselves is how much are we both or each of us on our smartphone while we are in the other person's company? And let's face it, we're all on our smartphones way too often. I know I'm guilty of it. I have now put limits on the smartphone that stop me from using social media or even pulling up the screen or pulling up the phone just so I can get a handle on the unconscious behavior around the damn thing. So when we're in relationships and we each have that problem that we're on the smartphone too much, maybe it's time to address that and to put it aside and I notice you don't have to tell the other person, put your goddamn phone away. <laughs> I tried that, didn't go so well. I put it away. I just put it away more often. So that when you're not doing anything while this other person's constantly on their phone, at some point they're going to notice that you're not doing anything and just waiting for them to finish. And I think in a loving relationship where you're still sort of in sync with each other, for a good part of the time that you spend together, the other person will notice and there's a good chance that they will also start to put their phone away. In many relationships, I notice that there's usually only one person doing the brunt of the relational work. It's nice when the other party also notices and tries to alter behavior or negative tendencies within the relationship. If you feel you're the one doing most of the relational work, then maybe 
it's a good idea to just ask a question, not come at the other person with any sort of resentment or just go numb and not say anything anymore, but to really maybe ask the questions, hey, is there anything about me, any blind spots that you feel you aren't being seen or where I could love you better? I got this one from this Vietnamese monk I've mentioned him before, Thich Nhat Hanh, where he says to ask about blind spots. Ask the other person, hey, where do you need me to do better by you? And I thought that was a wonderful thing. So it's not just about, hey, you're not meeting my needs. I'm unhappy here. Why aren't you doing what you used to do? But to be open about where it is that maybe we are not necessarily contributing in a way that feels loving and caring for the other person. And I think it's quite interesting what happens when you ask a person that, because in that moment, all attention is on them. And isn't that just one of the greatest things about love is to give someone your undivided attention? And I think maybe you've probably already experienced it. But if you haven't, maybe give it a shot, because it's a really wonderful spot to be in. It's very vulnerable and not so easy, but I do believe there's a little bit of magic hidden inside that question. Where can I love you better? And then in that way, open up the space to share the relationship work together. Here comes a bit of a big one. There's two big ones heading our way. Infidelity. I think whether we're the ones who have been unfaithful or the other person, this is probably sort of a fork in the road for most relationships that go through this particular incident, I want to say. And at this fork of the road, we probably ask ourselves, should I stay or should I go? This might be a good time to mention that that book I'm writing is about breakups. How do we manage them? How can we feel our way through without just falling apart? Or if falling apart is part of the process, which I assure you it probably is, then how do we put ourselves back together? How do we handle the logistics? All that stuff. And infidelity is a big chapter in that book. So when we find ourselves in the situation of infidelity, our own or the other person's, then maybe, and this is such a tough call, people, I could have many episodes just on that particular topic. There is one if you want to go back. But to ask ourselves, what were the conditions in our existing relationship under which the infidelity happened? And do we believe, both of us, that these conditions can be altered or modified in a way that the infidelity does not occur again? Of course, there are no guarantees. We don't know, really. And the other person doesn't know if this is never, ever going to happen again with a lifespan of 80 plus years and maybe being together for a very long time, we just can't be sure, which is why we want to work on this all the more to look at the circumstances, look at the conditions, this relationship, the state of the union, I want to say, and to ask ourselves what happened. Infidelity is rarely a one person game. This is not about victim blaming. This is not about blaming anyone. As we know, blame is such a ugh, such an unuseful energy, but to really examine, well, what led up to this? And is the other person willing to look at it with us? Or do they want to leave because we've been unfaithful? Or do we want to leave because we think we're dealing with a lifetime unfaithful person, they're just going to keep doing it again and again? Those are all questions that are good to ask. 
But first and foremost, opening up the space and seeing is the other person ready to talk about what might have or how many things might have led up to this transgression. Two little logistic things before I get to another big point is financial stability and children. Should I stay or should I go? Because if I leave, my financial stability is all but non-existent, then that's a very valid reason to stay. It may not necessarily be enough, though. And I say this from a point of being a person of privilege. I live in the West. The government here in Germany has a somewhat still remaining social welfare system. So to really, really fall off the radar, it can happen, of course, and not to, due to any fault of our own, maybe. But it's not as easy as, let's say, in some other countries around the world. So to even be able to work towards financial freedom is not necessarily an option for many of us around the globe. But if it is, if the true answer to can I find my own financial autonomy actually is a yes, then maybe if financial stability is the only reason we're staying, there is indeed a way to move towards autonomy here. Maybe plan on finding a job, returning to the workforce if we hadn't been it in a while, and to see if maybe there are options, if indeed the financial stability is not something that we feel is a sine qua non, is something we can't live without. And that's something for each of us to decide. The other part I mentioned was children. I speak about this a lot in my book as well. There are so many aspects to whether or not I should stay because we have children together. How will they react when we leave? Is there going to be a custody battle? Will the children be all right? And that's such a complex issue that I very much recommend we think about long and hard, and we probably do, and that certainly can't be handled in a little podcast of 20 minutes or so. However, my experience has been that happy parents make happy children. That doesn't mean happy all day, every day, but the weather in the relationship, it can be cloudy at times, but the climate should look more like Tuscany than, I don't know, India during monsoon season or something. So if children are constantly exposed to India during monsoon versus the occasional tiff, but otherwise an okay atmosphere at home, then maybe it's time to think about other ways to be parents to our children than cohabitation or marriage or whatever it is that we have in terms of a model of living together. And the last one, because I guess we cannot not talk about this one. What about sex? And I've noticed we can talk about sex forever. Personally, I can't anymore, but certainly during my younger years, it was very much a topic of fascination for me. And we still talk about it in terms of what makes a good relationship. We talk about connection in terms of sex, the frequency, the types of sex we're having, and it feels like a little much sometimes, and there's certainly a lot of choices going on out there. And of course, it is an indicator if things are going well or not. You sense it, there's a but coming on. Yes, the sex, we want it to be good and exciting and with a reasonable frequency within the marriage. I want to say that just because you're still sleeping with each other doesn't mean all is well. And 
If you're being particularly adventurous all the time, I don't know, you're swinging off the chandeliers every night in leather and latex, that's also not a guarantee that this relationship will last because you're investing so much in the sex. So what I'm trying to say is that it can be a bit of a barometer, of course, but it's not the only one. If there's been infrequent sex lately, that doesn't mean somebody is cheating. But if it unsettles us enough to the point where we start thinking about it a lot, then maybe, yes, we should address it. Hey, why is this not happening anymore? Are you tired? Is there anything I can do? Or maybe the other person can come up with the idea of asking why it isn't happening. I love what Oprah said in one of her shows many years ago. This must have been in the 90s where she says, you know, sex starts with helping me with the laundry. So this was very much a gendered and um, traditional perspective, meaning that the guy wanted sex and the woman was too exhausted. But what I'm trying to say is, of course, the sex doesn't just start once we're in bed and all our clothes are off. It starts with what happens before the communication, the support of each other. So to just sort of understand that yes, there is a way to look at sex and see how much of a reflection of our relationship it is. But to sort of back off a little bit from the idea that it is one of the main indicators. No, it is one of the main indicators, but it's not the only one. All right, that's it from me. Hoping that you're having the kind of relationship and sex and stability that you wish for in your relationship and that maybe if you don't and you're asking yourself this key question of should I stay, should I go, that there are some little questions here that will help guide you through that process of questioning. That's all from me this week. I hope you're well. Sending love.